When that man keeps saying, please report any suspicious behaviour, what is suspicious behaviour? Well, it's when someone's acting oddly or they look very nervous or they, I don't know, sweating a lot. Or if they're carrying a bomb. Yep, that, that would qualify as suspicious behaviour. OK. Oh, no, because... That man's sweating. <coughs> Yes, but he's hot. He's just hot. I saw a lady buy a chocolate bar and then not eat it. And I saw a man that was that was holding his hands behind his back for a very long time. And I saw a lady, she was looking at a sign with very small eyes. And okay. I think those things are suspicious. Well, it's quite complicated because they believe that their religion tells them to do it so that they can get into heaven. Is this Muslims? No, not ju it's, it's not just Muslims, no. What other religions have blown up planes? Well, uh, the... Well, it is mostly Muslims, yes, but it's just a tiny, tiny group of Muslims that do bad things uh, because they think God is telling them to do it. That's silly. Why would God tell them to blow up planes? Well, uh, exactly. God could do it much easier than they could. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. Well, yes. Yes. Let's continue. That man's still sweating. <laughs> All right. Got him on. So we're exploring tough questions in this series, um, questions we can't escape when it comes to what we believe, uh, and especially when it comes to things that we read in the Bible. And um, I showed that clip from a British uh, comedy, because if you've been here the last few weeks, um, it just continues to illustrate the way that kids can ask really, really, really good questions. Um, but the question that we're going to ask and explore today is related uh, to something that they were discussing. Because it's easy for us to question and to condemn people who seem to do things that are very violent and very terrible uh, because it's what they believe or because they think God is telling them uh, to do that. But what do we do when we read really big chunks of the Bible where people seem to be doing the same thing? They do really violent and terrible things in the name of the God that we worship. And it's not just people doing it. God himself, especially in the Old Testament, seems to condone, seems to endorse, seems to even sometimes command or allow violence to be done in his name and to fulfill his purposes. I want to read you uh, a chapter from the book of Isaiah this morning. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and uh, I want you to just listen to it. Isaiah was a prophet, and he would give these sermons, and his sermons were based on visions that he saw or messages that he believed God gave him to pass along to either Israel or to people from other nations, and all of these sermons or messages that were attributed to him are collected together, and they're put together in the book of Isaiah, and so I want to read one of those messages today. This is directed at the nation of Babylon, and you can just listen if you like. A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw. 
Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them. Beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath. Those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives violated. See, I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There, no nomads will pitch their tents. There, no shepherds will rest their flocks, but desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There, the owls will dwell, and there, the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds, jackals her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. So here's the question we're asking. Why is God so angry, particularly in the Old Testament? So much so that he uses warfare and violence like this, which is horrible, right? We can all agree, it's horrible. So much so that he uses those things to punish and to judge people. And it's, it's not as simple as just saying, well, um, God in the Old Testament is angry and mean and violent, but uh, the God of the New Testament is really nice and nurturing and loving, and we're not ancient Israelites, so we don't follow the God of the Old Testament, we follow Jesus and the God of the New Testament. It's, it's not that easy, uh, because A, um, it's the same God, right? It's the same God. Um, and B, if you've read the New Testament, Jesus can be pretty mean sometimes. Like he had some, some mean things to say to certain people. He told some people that they would be judged for their wickedness. Jesus talked about hell way more than the Old Testament ever does, which is a whole nother question we'll come to in a couple of weeks. 
But, but it's, it's not like you can just say, well, we follow, you know, because Jesus can be pretty judging and punishing and wrathful. So, so here's the good news this morning, that God is just as angry and mean and violent in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament, right? That's not really good news. But you still feel like, even if it's the same God, and even if Jesus can be kind of harsh sometimes, he doesn't seem as harsh. I mean, when we listen to Isaiah 13, I mean, that seems excessive. I mean, that seems over the top. I mean, weren't you bothered by that while I was reading it? Wouldn't you be bothered if we based all of our responsive readings on passages like that during church, right? See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger and vengeance, right? Their infants will be dashed. Their women will be violated. Like, what if we were going back and forth saying that in church? That would be bothersome. Should bother us. You see, this is a really, really big question. Because there's lots more chapters like Isaiah 13 in the Old Testament. If you were here last week, we said um, that God almost never uses natural disasters or sickness to punish or judge people, so much so that we should never assume any kind of natural disaster or sickness is God's reason for punishing someone. That, that, we shouldn't do that. But he does use war a lot in ancient Israel. He uses human violence against other people a whole lot. And because this is such a big question and raises so many more questions, we're gonna take today and next week to try to explore it and unpack it together. And we're actually gonna look at it from two different angles. And so um, today we're gonna look at the first angle and that's God's wrath. God's wrath, that word that came up over and over in Isaiah 13, and particularly it comes up a lot in the prophetic books when you read through them. And then um, next week, we're going to look at a different angle, and that's God's warfare. Particularly, it's just described in the historical accounts, Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel. You know those stories where God tells the Israelites to go into the promised land and completely wipe out or annihilate the Canaanites? Why does he do that? We'll look at that next week. But today, let's just try to get our minds and our hearts around this idea of wrath. So what is wrath? Let me, let me give you a definition. <clears throat> wrath is grounded in the emotion of anger. And it's expressed in some form of action, or maybe better said, reaction. So wrath is, is first grounded in the emotion of anger, and we've all felt angry, right? And anger is almost always a response to two things. Anger is either a response to somebody hurting you personally, somebody doing something that hurts or harms you or wounds you personally, or anger is a response when you see someone else being hurt or someone else being harmed or someone else being wounded, especially in a really unfair Way. So when we're personally hurt or when somebody else is hurt, we feel anger. So it's a responsive emotion. You don't just stir up anger on your own. You, it's stirred up because you see something or you experience something yourself. Now wrath is the next step. Wrath is an extreme form of anger where you are so wounded or hurt or you see someone else so unjustly being wounded or hurt that you feel like you just have to do something about it. You have to act. You have to respond. You can't let this go. 
Somebody or something needs to be confronted and needs to be challenged and maybe even punished. They need to understand the consequences of the hurtful thing that they did. That's what wrath is. Wrath is anger expressed in action or reaction because you're reacting to something horrible that's been done. And that's how it is with God's wrath. God feels a sense of anger when people offend him, specifically, right, when they rebel against him, kind of like when your parents told you to stop doing that one thing, and they told you over and over to stop doing that one thing, and you looked them right back in the eye, and then you did it again, right? And your parents maybe weren't physically harmed or hurt, but they felt wounded in their heart. They felt disrespected. They felt dishonored. Your rebellion inflicted a wound, towards them. That's how God feels when people rebel against him. But he also feels anger when people hurt other people. Because those other people are his children too. And just like if you have children, when you see someone hurting your children, you feel something deep down inside. And God feels that when he sees people lying to his children, when he sees people hurting his children, when he sees people taking advantage of his children. He feels a sense of anger and sometimes even wrath. But it's really, really important to know when we're talking about wrath, it's a response to something that someone else has done. And so in Isaiah 13, God doesn't just randomly get mad at the Babylonians. He doesn't just decide, one day I'm going to be angry and I'll just pick the Babylonians to be angry at. He's angry with the Babylonians because they've rejected him as God. They haven't listened to his prophets who have gone to tell him of their message. And he's especially angry with them because they've been brutal to other people. They've been cruel to other people. The Babylonians were known as a people that were especially cruel and violent and and they enslaved people when they conquered them and they oppressed people when they conquered them. They were like the bullies of the ancient Near East. And God is so upset with them that he finally says, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not going to stand by and see you keep doing this. You need to learn a lesson. You need to experience the consequences of what you've been doing. You need a taste of your own medicine. And so that's basically what the day of the Lord is. It's God deciding he's not going to sit back and just watch, them ha- watch this happen anymore. It's his anger moving to a place of wrath where he decides he has to do something about this. But don't forget, it's always a response to something. And that's important because that means that God's anger and God's wrath are not really something he wants to do. They're not really a part of who he actually is. Is They're not a primary or a fundamental or a core quality of his character. Let me read you another passage. This is from the book of Isaiah as well. And it's when God gets angry with the leaders of Israel. Because he gets angry with his own people a lot as well. And he's angry with the leaders of Israel here because they keep leading the people of Israel astray. And he confronts them about it through Isaiah. And they scoffed at Isaiah. They scoffed at God And God decides he's not going to take it any longer. And so this is what Isaiah says. This is in chapter 28. 
He says, the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon. Perizim and Gibeon refer to two battles that were fought against the Philistines where the Philistines were destroyed. And so he's basically saying, I'm about to do something really destructive to you. So he'll rise up and he'll rouse himself to do his work, his strange work, and to perform his task, his alien task. So this is a passage about God's judgment and God's wrath on these really wicked leaders of Israel, but it says that when he judges them, when he responds to them, when he finally acts to put a stop to what they've been doing, when he disciplines them, it's like work. In fact, it's like strange work. It's work he doesn't want to do. It's work he doesn't like to do. It's a task that he has to perform, but it's an alien task. That's the word that's used to refer to an alien or a foreigner, someone. So it's saying this is a foreign task to him. It's not something that's natural or normal for him to do. It's foreign for God to be angry at people and judge them in that kind of way. There's another passage from the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a short book, and it's like it sounds. It's a lament on the destruction of Jerusalem. So at one point, the Babylonians, the bad guys, sweep in and destroy Jerusalem. And it's partly because the people of Jerusalem and Israel have been so wicked, and so God stops protecting them, and he lets this happen. And the whole book of Lamentations is this lament about how horrible it is when Jerusalem is destroyed. But in the middle of that description of God's judgment, this is what it says in Lamentations. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly, and literally in Hebrew, it's from his heart. He does not from his heart bring affliction or grief to anyone. He doesn't from his heart bring grief or affliction. It's it's not what's in his heart when he's upset, when he's angry when he decides to do something about it, when he comes to the conclusion that the only thing that can happen here is for him to step in and either remove his protection or allow something to happen for somebody to suffer some consequences of what they keep doing over and over and over. He's not doing it because he wants to. He's not doing it because he likes doing that. He's not doing it because he's just sitting around waiting for somebody to judge and he just starts picking people out. It's not what he wants to do. It's not in his heart. That's not what he's longing to do. That's not how he sees people or wants to treat them. You see, wrath is secondary to his nature. It's not fundamentally who he is. Now, there's a word that I think summarizes this uh, dynamic best, and it's a word I want to teach you. Uh, You've probably heard the word before, but I, I think it summarizes this, and I hope it's the word that you'll remember today, and it doesn't resolve all the tensions of God's wrath. Like, it's not gonna answer all the questions. It doesn't resolve the tension of why God shows wrath to some people but not to others, why he shows it sometimes, a whole lot in the Old Testament, but a little bit in the New Testament, but seemingly not as much in the New Testament. It just doesn't answer all of those questions. But I do think it's an idea that's really clear throughout the whole Bible, even though we often miss it. So here's the word. It's the word asymmetry. Asymmetry. 
Here's a definition. Asymmetry is a lack of equality or equivalence between parts or aspects of something. It's a lack of symmetry, right? So most of us know what symmetry is. Um, Symmetry is when two halves of something are equal. And we can see this in beautiful ways when it comes to architecture. So like uh, the Taj Mahal in India, very, very symmetrical. Or uh, traditional cathedrals you see all over Europe were built with this kind of symmetry where everything's equal and balanced. Churches are still built this way. This sanctuary is built this way. Each half is similar. There's just as many good-looking people on this half today as this, right? Everything is balanced. And most of us think God is this way. That God is equally loving and he's equally tough. Sometimes he's really happy with us and sometimes he's really angry with us. Sometimes he shows grace and mercy. Sometimes he shows his wrath and his punishment. But they're equal sides to God. They're symmetrical sides to God. And that's a very common viewpoint. In fact, I think that's the way I've thought about God most of my life. But that's not the way the Bible portrays God. That's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah, the prophet of doom, says, wrath is alien to God. Wrath is strange to him. That when he feels wrath and anger towards people, it's not normal. That his wrathful side is not equal to his loving side. It's not as if he shows love three days of the week and then he shows wrath three days of the week and then he rests on the seventh day, right? To keep it all equal, right? That's not how it works. Feeling anger, showing wrath, it's not a core part of who he is. Lamentation says it doesn't come from his heart. Why? Because there's an asymmetry in God. Asymmetry is when the parts are not equal. Uh, Famous works of art are often asymmetrical, like Starry Night by Van Gogh. I mean, the stars are big and they're bright and they're brilliant and they're mysterious and they loom over this small little town in this overwhelming way. Great photographs, if you're a photographer, you know, are typically asymmetrical. In this one, the sea dominates the lower two-thirds of the photo. And the rock mountain is even more pronounced, not when it's in the very center, but when it's off to the side. It's almost as if the weight of the photograph is is leaning in one direction. And in, in art or in architecture, it's not that asymmetry is better than symmetry. It's not that way at all. But asymmetry does describe God better because his love is so much greater than his wrath. His mercy, James will say in the New Testament, triumphs over judgment. He's a God who always bends in one direction towards love and grace and forgiveness. I wanna read you one more passage this morning. It comes from an encounter that um, Moses had 
with God. And it's the first time that God gets really angry with the nation of Israel. It's right after he delivers them out of uh, Egypt um, from slavery in Egypt. And we actually looked at this story last year when we went through the book of um, Exodus. But he delivers them out of Egypt and they start worshiping this idol that they made. Right after God said, hey, number one thing I want you to do, don't worship other gods. Number two, don't make any idols. And everyone was like, we got it. We're never going to worship any gods. We're never going to make any idols. And a few days later, they're making an idol and worshiping another god. And it's like God is frustrated and angry with them already. And there's this long exchange that takes place between Moses and between God about what he's going to do with this anger. And in the middle of that, God looks to Moses and he says, let me just tell you what I'm like. Let me just make it clear to you what kind of God I am, who I really am. And God gives this description of who he is. And it's a description that's repeated throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible. It is the answer to the question, what is God like? It's found in Exodus 34, and I put numbers in uh, the verses. The, 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 the numbers are not the verses we're going to read, but there's basically nine things that God says about himself in these short sentences, nine qualities that he's trying to let us know, this is who I am. And so this is what he says. His description is this, the Lord, the Lord, which is his name in Hebrew, it's actually Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate, first and foremost. Number one, he's compassionate. And the Hebrew word for compassionate is actually related to the Hebrew word for womb. And it's almost this picture that God's like a mother. He has compassion on his children. Number two, he's a gracious God. Grace, as we learned last fall from the apostle Paul, is a gift it's just a gift. It's, it's giving someone something or giving someone favor, not because they deserve it or earn it or any merit they have. And so God is gracious towards Israel, not because Israel's good and righteous, which means when Israel stops being good and righteous, he's still going to be gracious and love them. Number three, he's slow to anger. So he's patient. He doesn't get angry quickly. So you see the asymmetry right here, right? If anger and love were symmetrical, he wouldn't be slow to anger. He would be quick to anger. It would be easy for him to get angry, but it's not. He puts it off as long as he possibly can. He is slow to anger. And at least on this occasion in Exodus, we'll see that because he gives the people of Israel another chance. And he'll keep giving them more chances over and over and over throughout the whole Old Testament. He's slow to anger. And that's because number four, he's abounding in love. He's abounding, he's rich in love, he's abundant in love. It's overflowing, it's overwhelming. And the word that's used here is the word chesed, which means a committed love. It's not feelings of love, it's not ooey gooey love, it's a commitment. I am committing to love you. Like a mother committing to love her children, no matter how hard things get. Number five, he's also abounding in faithfulness. It means he keeps his promises. He does what he says. He doesn't give up. They can always count on him. 
Number six, he maintains or keeps showing that committed love to thousands. And he's probably not even talking about thousands of people here. You're going to see later, he's almost certainly talking about thousands of generations. He just keeps showing it over and over for thousands of generations. Number seven, he forgives. And the word is literally, he carries. He picks up and carries the wickedness, the rebellion, the sin of his people. And the image here is the child who rebels or disobeys. And when that happens, what does the mom do? She rolls with it, right? She knows this is what she signed up for. This is what parenting is all about. And so when the child hurts himself or herself doing something silly, even though mom gave all kinds of warnings, what does mom do? She still comforts the child. She bandages up his wounds or her wounds. She doesn't look at the child and say, I told you not to do this. Serves you right for not listening to me. No, she carries the child. Number eight, yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. Literally, he doesn't let anybody off, which is surprising after numbers one through seven, right? I mean, you would think God's a pushover. You can do anything you want. But at this point, he's saying, eventually, the mother's patience is gonna wear out. Eventually, mom is gonna say, okay, that's it. You've taken this too far. I can't let you keep doing this. There's gonna be consequences, which are, number nine, he punishes And it's actually, the Hebrew word there is the word for visit. Literally, he visits the consequences on the children and on their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God realizes people aren't isolated islands, that when they make bad choices, that the fate of communities is wrapped up together, the fate of families is wrapped up together, the fate of generations are bound up Together And so the people around you and the people after you often suffer the consequences of your foolish choices. But notice the contrast here. What is God saying? He's saying that his wrath and his judgment towards somebody who continues in rebellion or someone who continues in sin will affect them and three or four people or maybe three or four generations. But he keeps showing love and commitment to thousands of people and thousands of generations. And notice that there are seven qualities we have to get through of different ways that God shows his love and his grace and his mercy, and only two describe his wrath, right? And his wrath is only a response. It's only a response to when things get so bad, that's what he's forced to do. And why? Because it's not who he is. It's not what he actually wants to show. It doesn't come from his heart to show wrath. It doesn't come from his heart to punish or to discipline or to allow people to experience the consequences of their actions. So why is God so angry in the Old Testament? Well, most of the time he's not. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's abounding in faithfulness. 
He maintains and keeps showing that love and faithfulness to thousands of generations. That's us. And he's willing to carry and forgive the waywardness and the sins and the rebellion and the shortcomings that we have in our lives. And sometimes, sometimes when we don't listen to him, Sometimes when we keep turning our backs on him. Sometimes when we keep hurting ourselves or sometimes when we keep hurting others. His grief turns to anger. And he says, that's enough. You've left me no choice but to step in and do something about this. You've left me no choice but to let you suffer some of the consequences of your choice, but it's not because I don't love you. I don't show my wrath in spite of my love. I show my wrath because of my love, because I love you and all my children so dearly. See, that's who God is. He loves you so much that he's willing to do something that he doesn't wanna do. He's willing to do something that's not natural to him. He's willing to do something that doesn't even really come from his heart because he doesn't want you to keep hurting yourself and he doesn't want you to keep hurting other people. See, he's not a God of wrath. He's a God of love. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God that we worship and that's the God who, yes, sometimes gets angry. Let me pray. God, help us to know your love today. If any of us are experiencing or feeling your wrath, your anger, your grief, your disappointment, help us to know it's just because you love us so much and you want to see our lives become so much better. And so if there's any of us that just need to turn to you in a unique way, or specific way, give us the courage to do that. And for the rest of us, um, when we do question your character, when we read these old stories and it doesn't seem fair or just, or it just seems excessive, um, help us to trust. Help us to know that you're like our parents. You have a bigger perspective than we often do. We don't always see the big picture. But we know this much, you love us. And if we have any doubts, we can remember your son that you sent for each and every one of us. Help us to know what you would have us to say and believe and experience and learn about you today. Pray this in your name, amen.